Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today it's my great pleasure to be joined by Lester Ruth and the Flow Work Group, who have all contributed chapters to Flow, the Ancient Way to Do Contemporary Worship, published in 2020 by Abingdon Press. Lester Ruth is the Research Professor of Christian Worship at Duke Divinity School at Duke University. Lester, it's so great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ryan. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Well, Lester, you've brought um, quite the tribe with you, the whole Flow work group who all contributed to this volume. Before we get into the actual contents of the book, could you share with us a little bit about yourself and some of your research interests and then introduce us to the the, the group that you've brought? Sure, I, I'd be glad to do all of that. Um, I think the best way to explain myself is to say that I'm a guy who has one foot in the fourth century and one foot in the 20th century, or the (laughs) 21st now. Um, In other words, um, I've always been interested in the worship of the early church and the worship of the current church, and I've tried to bring those into conversation. And this book actually arises Um, out of that kind of dual interest. How can the ancient church and the current church be in productive conversation with each other? The common link through the entire flow work group is Duke Divinity School. So we're looking at either um, current students or former students or former students who've continued on as current students. (laughs) So um, uh, Zach Barnes is a Pentecostal uh, church planter. Um, here in North Carolina as a recent graduate um, of Duke Divinity School. Uh, I'm going to try to go down by the order of appearance in the book itself. Adam Perez is a fifth-year doctoral student in worship studies here at Duke Divinity School. Jonathan Ottaway is a fourth-year doctoral student um, in worship studies here at the Divinity School. Glenn Stahl-Smith is also a fourth-year um, Divinity student, um, uh, yeah, doctoral student at the Divinity School. That's the way to, to say it. He also has his MDiv um, here from Duke. Uh, Drew Eastus is a third-year homiletics doctoral student um, at Duke, also an MDiv graduate from Duke Divinity School. And uh, Debbie Wong is a um, second-year doctoral student in worship studies and also an MDiv graduate. So if you Cut us, we bleed blue, which is the school color for the (laughs) university. Uh, That's wonderful. Well, thank you all so much for being here. I'm excited to hear from each of you about your contributions to this wonderful volume, Flow, that's available now from Abington Press. So Lester, I'd like to start with you talking about uh, just kind of an introduction to this volume. So 
in your introduction, you distinguish at least at least three different kinds of worship. You talk about ancient worship, traditional worship and contemporary worship, which might start to sound a little counterintuitive. But you know that there might be some more common shared characteristics between contemporary worship and ancient worship than than even necessarily traditional worship. So how how are you kind of defining these different styles of worship and and how do you you come to this uh this realization that there's connection between ancient and contemporary? Sure. Um let me back up first and kind of tell you the premise of the book. Great. Um which is can we take of uh, the current order of worship from mainline denominational worship resources? Um, an order of worship sometimes called fourfold because it's got four major sections to it, or sometimes just called word and table because that's the heart of the service. Mm -hmm. Can we take that order of worship and do it in a way that feels legitimately and authentically contemporary? Mm. Um, Oftentimes in mainline congregations, it doesn't. uh, Because the, the manner that the order of worship's presented on the printed page I think actually has built-in stylistic presumptions because everything's nice and sequential, nicely laid out, certain texts are provided. Uh, Whereas contemporary worship um, operates on flow and energy and um, emotion or affect, we might say. So what we did is we went back to perhaps what's the earliest description of this order of worship that we now find in the mainline denominations, mm-hmm. this word and table order. Um, and it comes from Justin Martyr in the mid-2nd century. And we did a close analysis of the way he describes it. And we notice that he described some qualities there in Rome in the mid-2nd century that actually stylistically, if I can use that term, stylistically sounded much more like contemporary worship uh, then they do what we would normally think of as um, mainline traditional worship. Hmm. So um, kind of using that close read of Justin Martyr to kick open the door a little bit, that's what created the um, open space in terms of creativity. And we um, therefore brought that material in conversation with recent Pentecostal literature on a getting good flow Mm-hmm. for a contemporary praise and worship service. And we wanted to see what we could um, um, cultivate out of that combination. So doing that all, uh, to go back to your original question, the way we define things, ancient worship would be that um, patristic, very early century way of worship, word mm-hmm. at table, which involved extemporaneous praying, open-endedness of time, um, a good flow of activity. Uh, Those are the qualities that are shared with the Pentecostal literature, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, We define traditional as um, kind of a certain stylistic approach um, to mainline Protestant worship um, that is not open-ended in time, uh, doesn't Mm -hmm. rely upon extemporaneous praying, um, and doesn't necessarily have a good flow of essential activities. it's nice and sequential. It's very rational, um, to use that term. Um, and therefore, we brought into the mix this Pentecostal literature, like I said, 
on um, contemporary praise and worship. Um, much of the impulse for what we are now experiencing in contemporary worship or contemporary praise and worship has Pentecostal roots. Um, and um, so if we can triangulate there, we're bringing in the ancient material in conversation with the Pentecostal material just to see what it could generate um, in terms of new ways of doing that ancient order of worship. Well, that sounds like a very promising project. So, uh, you know, I'd like to, so thank you for sharing that. And, and now let's move to, to Zach. Zach, in your chapter, you start to, to look at the history of how this, this concept of flow has been emerging in the contemporary worship literature over the last half century or so. Can you share a little bit about what you found and presented in your chapter? Absolutely. Thank you, Ryan, for the opportunity to to be here and to talk about this uh, uh, book that I've enjoyed being a part of. Oh, you're so welcome. Uh, in, my particular chapter, in my particular chapter, uh, I, I, I talk about the organic stage, first of all, of this kind of idea of flow and how flow begins to emerge in the 70s. Uh, that's kind of where we're starting at. Um, we see it in some of the earliest vineyard fellowships. Uh, uh, vineyard churches out on the West Coast. They're worshiping for extended periods of time. They're praying for one another. Instrumentalists are starting to shift from one song to another uh, in worship time. And we see this really in John Wimber's church at uh, Vineyard Anaheim. Uh, the worship team had no set list, but they would go from one song to the next as they were uh, being led by the Spirit. That was their way of approaching it. And so you see this idea of flow is uh, progressing. Um, a particular work that's important as we're kind of looking at this, because my chapter was both historical and uh, kind of served as a bibliographic reference with all of the literature that we referenced, um, is David Blomgren's Song of the Lord, which was uh, published in 1978, perhaps the first written uh, to teach others how to achieve good flow grouping of courses based on the key in which they were written in tempo. All that to say, we're seeing this kind of emergence during this time of an idea of flow. And over the next few decades, we start to see um, as this movement of practitioners of flow starts to grow, that there are developments that begin to come to, uh, about. I think one important development that we see in the chapter that I is there is a development at first there's just idea of just we need to be led by the spirit let's put all these courses up with a key and this particular key over here and then base them also on tempo uh, but as it grows we see a development of technique and theological framework that goes hand in hand so by the 80s there's more of a uh, of an emphasis on the techniques the mechanics of flow i mean you've got uh, bob sore who's uh, who's writing and he, he's, he publishes Exploring Worship, uh, all of these particular uh, authors are starting to come, are beginning to come on the scene and they're developing uh, what framework, theological framework, practical framework uh, uh, that's needed for flow. Uh, the, the second development I would say is that there is really an ecumenical development that happens. Hmm. And by the 90s, this literature on, pray, on contemporary worship has expanded and mainline congregations and even more traditional evangelical churches are beginning to um, implement these ideas. So you've got Don McMinn, who is the minister of praise and worship uh, in the 90s at a large Baptist church in Oklahoma, who writes the practice of praise, uh, a handbook on worship renewal. And he's arguing for a progression in worship that is similar to the way charismatics and Pentecostals had already been teaching. Go from thanksgiving to praise to worship. 
Um, and so you're starting to see this ecumenical development uh, take place, um, as well as evangelical megachurches are starting to pick up on this. I mean, in 1999, Saddleback offers a music conference in which it's advocating for a particular paradigm of worship that guides one's affections into the presence of God, a way of flowing, guides one's affections to recognize the presence of God. So there is the development after we have that organic stage, then there's a development of technique and theological framework that go hand in hand. There's the ecumenical development. And then, and then finally, I would just note historically, there really develops an industry around this idea of flow. So by the 2000s, there is an abundance of literature that's being produced. I mean, you've got Darlene Sheck, who, who from Hillsong, who's writing extravagant worship in 2001. Um, you, you've got uh, instructional videos uh, uh, being produced, arguing for worship, being centered around the idea of encountering the presence of God in a genuine way, and not just you know, these theological frameworks, but also giving practical tips. So I think what ends up happening is you see all of this industry developing around flow. And what uh, what becomes interesting is in 2013, Dan Wilt, who's connected to the Vineyard Movement, released How to Lead Worship Without Being a Rock Star. And what's so particular about this, interest, this, this work is Wilt presumes um, – basic principles of flow and transition apply so that he doesn't even speak to the issue of tempo anymore in categorizing songs and going, knowing not to go from slow to fast, back to slow, back to fast. He doesn't even mention that. Um, So it it really begins to make one think that by this point, flow is basically, you know, in the liturgical water, it's part of the language and the framework. And I think that's part of the development that started with that organic stage and, and, with the abundance of literature that we have by the early thousands and and then into the 2010s, you know, it's just showing that notions of flow are here to stay and permeating most um, liturgical traditions. Thank you so much, Zach. That's absolutely fascinating. Well, then we move from talking about the history of flow to, to starting to, to really think through the components that make it up. And so Adam and your your pair of chapters that you have in the second part of this book, you, you start, let's talk about your first chapter. What, what is an order of worship? What are the, what are the essential components and, and how do you see them? How can we approach them as related into a single unified act or, or as opposed to maybe tending to think of them as, as separate activities and events? Yeah, that's great. And you're already getting um, into the kind of the core notion, which which is the application of what we just was described in both the historical, uh, ancient historical and the recent historical process here is really, I think we're moving from thinking about the order of worship and the constituent components of worship uh, on their own to thinking them, thinking of them as an event something that happens uh, and, and not just an event, but an, a thing, uh, an event that people experience. We're thinking about the order of worship as something that we do together. Um, so this means, you know, like, like you're alluding to that we need to think about how the various elements of a worship service work together to form that essential whole. And, and assuming or the presumption built in is that there is a unity and there can be a unity of these elements. Um, and we should think of them uh, as a unity across from, you know, gathering word, table, sending, uh, rather than thinking about the constituent pieces and dividing them up and trying, you know, to to discreetly sort of address each one in turn. 
Um, you know, we're not we're not thinking of okay, we have a word section, then a table section. We have you know a, a different patterns of worship, the song service, the preaching, and an altar call, or like we've been talking about, the gathering, word table sending of uh, mainline traditions. And the presumption here is not that that's inadequate somehow that these forms and these orders are somehow um, not helpful, uh, but really reclaiming the utility of them, reclaiming the way that they help form our imagination for this progressive integral event, but really that we need to reclaim the sense of the event. So uh, moving from thinking about the objects, the things, the parts, the pieces of worship um, to to the uh, really the event of worship. And when I talk about event, we talk about actions, what each yeah. element in the worship service is doing. Um, so in the chapter, I, I kind of walk through each section of, of the worship service, gathering, word table, sending. And I ask that question, how does it, uh, for example, the gathering, how, do, how does what we do in this time in the service help people to gather? What are the essential actions that need to happen so we can gather well together, gather around the word, gather around the theme for the day, gather around the event that we're celebrating, the feast day, whatever it is. Um, and, uh, and really, it, we're always asking what's supposed to be happening in this element, not, you know, okay, there's the hymn of praise, and we always have a hymn of praise right at that moment. But what's the hymn of praise for? What should it be helping us to do? Um, and, and again, always reclaiming that unity of the, the largest, um, largest level of thinking of it as an event. Um, and I think there's really something hu very human about this. We're attending not just to the order of service for its own sake, as though it's uh, an event that does something on its own, mm -hmm. but that it's the people planning an experience and an event for other people to experience. Um, it's about people coming together, people hearing a story, people celebrating a meal, people being sent out into the world. And those are, those are things that happen. Um, so that's really what chapter three is really trying to get, to get toward. Thank you, Adam. So you've, you've done this really great work to, to move from thinking about things to, to actions. And then, so you, you've talked about the what of an order of worship, but then maybe can we move to talk a little bit about how planners and, and worship leaders can incorporate, start incorporating flow into their services, which is, which is really the subject of your next chapter. Yeah, chapter four attends to the, uh, the planning process and trying, if we reimagine the order of worship, how do we reimagine how we plan for an order of worship that, um, and it, it really starts again with that, that basic question of what is it we're planning for? Um, asking, you know, built on the Justin Martyr and the, and the flow history, um, how do we attend to time and extemporaneity and the experience of them in worship? Um, so I offer a few different, um, a few different elements that, that tend to happen in our worship planning uh, that, that I encourage us to be cautious of. Um, so, for example, dead time, being cautious of, of the time between uh, event, events in this case or, you know, parts of the order of service, being cautious of redundancy, where we're doing something more than once because it actually propels the event along, but because uh, we've got them, they've, they've accumulated in our, uh, in our liturgy. And we've, if we've got it, you know, okay, we have these two same, these two events that do functionally the same thing, um, but they don't really go anywhere, go anywhere, um, kind of uh, spinning our liturgical wheels, if you will. Um, uh, something I like to call thematic tetherball. 
um, where we're sort of like passing a theme back and forth without ever progressing anywhere. Um, you know, three songs about glory. Uh, okay, great. But that, that, uh, and that can, do, but it doesn't go anywhere. I mean, uh, yeah. uh, Zach was just talking about, um, you know, that sense of a song set that, that takes you, you know, is trying to bring you into an awareness of the presence of God. Right. Um, so, so going somewhere. Um, another thing I caution against is, is what I call the, and now for something completely different, um, uh, where it's just, you're, you've just made such a drastic transition from one thing to the next that it's like, we have whiplash, a liturgical whiplash. Um, and then finally, uh, one of my, my last caution in, in the chapter is, uh, for co- cognitive dissonance, uh, mm. a dissonance between what's said and what's being, di- what's being done. I mean, I think in any, anyone's experience i'm sure you have this uh this example here well i give one example of you know sort of uh the pastor the priest celebrating communion and saying uh you know holding up the, the elements and saying uh in the most monotonous and and sort of boring tone it is truly a joy in all times and all places everywhere to give thanks to god and it's like yeah i really believe you not um because <laughs> because what they're performing the event that's being performed doesn't communicate the words that are being uh being offered in that moment um so some ways that can draw us out of that sense of flow in time because they they provide friction and distraction from uh the really the core essential action that's being performed um and on the topic of uh of this sort of flow i i go into more about extemporaneity and the trying to dispel some myths about extemporaneity the the idea that you know we really can practice and rehearse and prepare extemporaneity both as leaders who who lead worship uh prepare to be better at being extemporaneous um and also in our planning, be conscious of the places where we actually are making space for ourselves to uh, extemporize and and to be uh, to allow ourselves to be in the moment in that congregation, uh, sensing you know discerning the spirit of God and the spirit of the congregation in any one uh, moment of worship. You know sometimes you read a text on the page and it hits one way and then it comes out of your mouth in leading and it hits a different way and, and making space and being conscious of the fact that, yeah, you can take a turn there. You can provide, this is something, you know, I think traditionally worship leaders have been really good at doing is sort of lingering where they need to linger. Um, but potentially also skipping and advancing in, uh, in ways that maybe what you prepared, again, you're not a slave to the, um, to the liturgical kind of uh, order that's been prepared, but you're you're making space to adapt. So, uh, so then I walk through each of the folds of the order of worship and, and kind of ask that those basic questions again. You know, what what's what's here? What needs to be here? How do we uh, plan for that essential action? Each of those um, each of those elements. Yeah, that's Adam. Listening to you describe some of these um, ways that flow can go wrong, it just rem- reminding me of all the times where I've experienced uh, bad flow or even worse, I've been guilty of <laughs> perpetuating some of those things. So I, I'm just thankful for the, That's the right. tools That's that you right. provided. I, I hope it's a, yeah, I hope it's a, it's a uh, just sort of honors that it's all of our experience and it's not something uh, we need to be necessarily ashamed of, but recognize that, you know, it's, it's something that we can, we can work on it's something true to our experience and honestly at the end of the day to say like this actually frames our encounter with god in 
community. And, and that's really important. So being conscious of these things is not some uh, holdover from, you know, sociological insights gathered by church growth folks on how to be, you know, uh, fitting to our context, but, but that it, it actually has that yeah. deeper sense of wanting to serve the, the fundamental goods that we, we hope worship will serve. That's right. Yeah, thank you so much for, for the work that you've done in that chapter. Well, as we move to then this third part of the book, we start to really apply this concept of flow into some distinct components or, or sub-disciplines, as it were, of, of a worship service. So, so Jonathan, you, you have a chapter where you apply good flow into specifically musical elements or techniques. What are some of the ways that, that this works out in, in the chapter that you've written and, and, and how, can, how can we have good musical flow? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Yeah, so as you say, we, these next chapters are the really, the nitty gritty. How do yeah. we do what we've been talking about, what this kind of big framework that has been laid out in the earlier chapters, uh, how do we now do that? Um, and so I'm, I'm trying to do this, this work for musicians. Um, I guess the, the, the big thing that my whole chapter is aiming towards is doing contemporary worship music well is more than a case of singing contemporary worship songs. It has to go to a deeper level yeah. than just the songs that you schedule to sing. There's much more to the task of doing contemporary worship music. It requires you to think differently about how you play your own instrument, how you relate to uh, the arrangement of a, a song, how you organize your team of musicians to play together, how you yourself as a leader need to think about how you lead the songs, how you need to think differently about how you um, schedule the songs and put the songs in an order. You know, as Adam said, we don't want, you don't want just three songs about the glory of God. You want songs that actually help do that work of moving you through the event yeah. of worship. Uh, and really kind of underlying the, the work that I'm doing in this chapter is that I'm, I'm particularly trying to address musicians who are in mainline congregations who may have learned or been uh, musically catechized um, in a particular style who are now maybe needing to think about music in different ways. Uh, in the research I've done, if you look at what's out there for musicians, uh, you know, church musicians, most of them assume this kind of narrative where at some point you've picked up a guitar, you've learned <laughs> to sing, you've learned to play a few chords. Uh, and now if we're going to provide you a resource, we want, to, we want to teach you how to do music better. So we're going to teach you some of the basics of music theory. We're going to teach That's you right. what chords go together in a key, how to read notes. And there's nothing that does the opposite, which assumes you're a musician, you know, how to do music well, you know how to read music, you know all the kind of basics of music theory, but you want to learn to flow in music better. Mm -hmm. And that, that's kind of, there's this, it, it seems like a nebulous skill set. Um, so really in this chapter, what I'm trying to do is to provide some limited, it's a short chapter, uh, some limited handholds that can yeah. show the way forward towards, well, what does it mean to do contemporary worship music well? How do, how do we need to shift our ways of thinking about music, ways of playing music? 
Uh, and so I'll just give you one example of that. Um, I start out the chapter by talking about the fact that you need to change the way in which you relate to notes on the page. Mm-hmm. What I've seen for so many musicians who kind of are making this transition from traditional to more contemporary is that they'll take the hymnal or they'll take the kind of the, the arrangement of the, the song that has been in a hymnal and they will play the notes that are there on the page and they will play it as it is written. And that's how they're going to do contemporary worship music. Uh-huh. And that rarely feels contemporary. Yeah. It doesn't feel if, if you were someone coming in from a, you know, an evangelical free church, who's really used to contemporary worship. It's not going to feel particularly contemporary. And so you need to, t- to make a movement away from, I'm not just going to play the notes that are on a page. I need to think about chords. I need to think about my, my job as a musician as it's a fundamentally more improvisatory activity where I need to think about the structure in terms of chords and rhythm and you, you trying to kind of take some freedom uh, and license in how you play so that you are moving away from notes on a page and more towards a kind of a, a much more l- looser way of, of playing music. Yeah, that's wonderful, Jonathan. It's absolutely right. It fits uh, um, a very uh, a, a gap that that really does seem to exist in the worship literature. So I'm so glad that you've you've contributed that, and looking forward to much more um, of that <laughs> coming from you in the future. I hope. Well, uh, so uh, now to the next area of of application of the nitty gritty, Glenn. You have a chapter talking about how flow can start to to really be applied into the various spoken word elements um, of a of a worship service so things like prayer and transitional statements even even into preaching so so how can we think through the the uh, what can what can good flow afford in our spoken elements yeah that's a pretty broad umbrella right to try to cover (laughs) prayers announcements (laughs) transitions reading the scriptures preaching right all in one chapter each of those things should have its own chapter, if not its own book, right? But, but what we're looking at here, why, why that's all grouped in one category in this book, is to think that when you approach a contemporary worship service, um, one, of the, one of the things that happens then um, when, this, when this style or this mode of worshiping comes, be, becomes prominent is, is we lose the service bulletin. I, w- I would imagine most of your, your listeners have had some experience in Christian worship where you have either, if not a uh, an, a book of worship or a prayer book, you at least get handed um, a sheet of paper uh, when you walk in the door that has, this is, this is what we're going to do today. You know, you yeah. start with a prelude and you end with a postlude, and then there's a b- bunch of stuff listed in between. Well, in a contemporary worship service, you lose that. Yeah. There's no more roadmap. There's no more visual roadmap. You experience it as the time flows. Um, you experience it as you go along. So one of the things that worship leaders whether, whether it's a song leader or a pastor, um, whoever is on the stage directing traffic, so to speak, has to do is provide that in-time roadmap. Um, a contemporary service, another way to say that is it's structured much more orally than visually. Um, not to say that there's not visual components in contemporary worship. There certainly are, you know, with the iMag screens and the, and the presentations and the video and, and all kinds of other things. But, but to guide the worshiper from step to step, it's, it's done... Um, by the ear more than by the eye. So, yeah. so this chapter talks about setting up signposts 
Mm-hmm. And, and the worship leader creates a signpost to direct traffic and to help guide the worshipers from step to step. So I break it down into three components. A signpost tells worshipers where they've been. It tells them, secondly, where they're headed. And then it also tells them what needs to happen right now. Um, so just to give a very basic example, um, say you're doing a, a brief spoken transition between reading, say, of Luke 15's uh, parable of the prodigal son. And, and, then the, and then the next big thing that happens is that the congregation is going to sing a song that's say, you are my hiding place. Probably not a song that many churches have sung uh, in the last 10 years or so, but one that you might be familiar with, just for the sake of an example. So in between the reading and, and, and the singing, like there needs to be something that happens. People need to know what's coming up. So to, a very short signpost would be something like, God's grace relentlessly pursues us and also provides a home for when we return. Let's stand together and sing a song of praise to the one who's our hiding place. Yeah. So it, it references back to the scripture reading. It, it points forward to the song and it tells the congregation what to do. And like Adam was talking about, you know, that needs to seem extemporized. That's not to say that uh, the worship leader shouldn't prepare it in some way. Um, probably not to the extent of writing it out and memorizing it word for word, unless, unless they really need to. But that needs to be presented in a way um, as, if, as if it's authentic, right? That's one of the buzzwords for contemporary worship. Right. Um, and so I, I just developed that signpost idea further. And so that even in a sermon, where you're not necessarily signposting you know, the steps of the service, but you're signposting salvation history writ large. So you're saying, what, well, what has happened? Well, what has God done in the past? What are we remembering? What has God revealed? Um, what are we looking forward to? Well, what's our eschatological hope? What, what is God calling us to? What is this good news that we're living in? And what is it that we need to do now? So, so those big, those three signpost moves can work, whether on a, on a micro level for a transition or a macro level, when you're talking about what God is doing um, in God's church. So yeah, that's, that's what we talk about in terms of what gets said in a contemporary service. Wonderful, Glenn. It just provided such a a model for how to be intentional with all of these moments that can so often just feel like they're throwaway moments, but you really show, I, I loved, I loved the language of signposts that you offered. So thank you so much for, for giving us some tools to think about that. You know, Glenn, you mentioned that there's not uh, the same amount of visual cues without a printed bulletin. Now, Drew, in your chapter, you start to, to really get into visual cues are, are now starting to function in a very different kind of way in contemporary worship. You bring up this, this I love this phrase that you use of visual liturgists. How can the concepts of flow from ancient worship help the very highly techie, modern, digital world of video and graphics and, and projection? Absolutely. And thank you, Ryan, so much for, for having us today. We don't necessarily think you have to have visual elements in a service for it to be a faithful service. I do want to say that up front. Great. But what we do think is that it can help draw attention to God, draw people into the service. Uh, and what we really believe is that if you're going to do it, you need to do it well, or else it destroys any sort of contribution it might otherwise make. Yeah. And I think the best way to achieve that is there needs to be a flow. Anything that breaks a flow, causes disruption or distraction, draws people's attention away from God and towards the technology. So what we aim to do in this chapter is I wanted to essentially make a brief guide 
for everything you need to know not to distract people and get their mind away from God. That's the best way I can summarize what we were aiming for there. And what I found is that a lot of resources out there that are very good uh, are some of them are book length um, contributions. Some are longer, 40, 50 pages. And the reality is, as a pastor, I know my people aren't going to sit down and read 50 pages to do this. Mm -hmm. Their lives are busy. And so my goal was in 10 pages, can I tell you everything you need to know not to distract? So there there are five basic elements here uh, that any visual element will have in a service. There's images, text, colors, videos, and transitions. And that's kind of the five things I look at. Yeah. So, you know, like with images, you're looking at, at where you place them on a slide so that you draw their attention to the right thing, right? Mm-hmm. Things like that. Text, you're looking at things like, um, is it a display text that's just like a title that could be more artistic and fun? Or is it more of a body text for longer bodies of text? Right? You don't want really fancy text for your lyrics of a song. People can't actually read eight lines of something fancy. Yeah. Um, size. You'd be amazed me churches I've preached at that the text is so small. If you're sitting in the back, you can't even see it. So what's the point of having it? Mm-hmm. And then they're just fussing the whole time because they can't see it. It's not helping anything at that point. <laughs> yeah. Um, colors. We look at things like uh, color symbolism, things I think we might not think about so much. Mm-hmm. Certain colors communicate certain emotions, draw certain things out of us. Uh, for instance, you, you wouldn't want a happy point in the service to have a blue, more somber kind of appearance to it. Mm. There's a disruption there between what the color communicates to us and what's happening. At the same time, you, you don't want disharmonious color uh, pairings. So there's some colors that frankly are just ugly together. <laughs> yeah. And if people have an eye for that kind of thing, they're not going to be actually singing the song anymore. They're going to be noticing how bad the colors look together. Mm-hmm. And that's going to become the subject of conversation. Right? So we talk about that uh, in the chapter. Uh, in terms of videos, talk about things like length. How long do things need to be? Everybody in the room knows when something has gone too long. You can feel it. when yeah. when. So I give some guidelines for that. Quality issues. If if they can't hear what you're saying, if if the music behind it. I, I remember once I preached a pastor appreciation service where there was a video where people were talking about how great the pastor was. It was very exciting, but the music behind it was the somber funeral music. It sounded like the pastor <laughs> had died. There's a disruption there, right? It distracts you. So we talk about things like that. And the fifth yeah. thing, which I think is so critical, is the transition element. The techniques of of transitioning from one image to another, not using distracting things like the, the like um, uh, a cut that's really abrupt or a thing spinning into place and things like this, ripples or what have you. Say you just want to dissolve or a fade, something really soft that people don't notice. The best transitions are the ones people never see. Yeah. If they talk about the transition, you did it wrong because now they're not <laughs> thinking about the elements of worship and the timing aspect of it is so critical. Um, and every aspect of the service has different timing of, of, of what, what's the best time to transition from one element to another. So, for instance, on uh, songs and spoken elements, you've got to have it where it fades. When the last word starts to be sung, you've got to go to the next slide or else people can't find their place in time to start singing again. There's a break. Um, but preaching is the exact opposite. If the thing pops up before they say it, people are distracted by the image. They're paying attention to that instead of what's being said. So Mm -hmm. there's all these elements. We're just trying to give a comprehensive guy here for if your worship person, your visual liturgist shows up the night before and says, I want to do this tomorrow. You can hand them this and say, here's what you need to know to do it. 
that's wonderful. It's almost a manifesto um, of good practice. So thank you so much for your work on that, Drew. Now, Debbie, you've done this wonderful appendix where you take all of this, uh, this thinking and you, you apply it in this beautiful um, example service uh, from, uh, of a service around John 2. Can, can you share a little bit about just how you, you set out kind of a, a, just a model for us to see what might this all look like in a, in a kind of on the ground practical way? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Um, it, it was actually quite hard to do. I like, so I'm grateful for your uh, thinking that it was a good job. Um, you know, so like you said, the sample service really tries to draw everything that's been said in the previous chapters together mm-hmm. and to show how all these different moving parts hold together, right? Your song choices, your musical arrangements, your spoken transitions, media, graphics, et cetera. Um, and I, since you called it a model, um, I just want to say, I think in some ways it's a bit of an artificial exercise, right? Like Lester said in the very beginning, once you try and put this sort of flow down on paper, you lose a bit of a sense of flow, right? And so in that sense, um, you know, what we have in the book, just because of the book, we had to put it on paper, but it doesn't quite capture the, the dynamism of the kinds of service we're trying to encourage people to do, right? You, you can't really capture that linearly um, or in discrete segments. And so what we have in the book actually is we've tried to separate out each of those, um, those elements like the music, spoken transitions, media, and put them in a sort of chart that shows how the different things are working together at the same time in order to try and get at that sense of uh, simultaneity, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the other aspect of it, I think, is that even if we can capture that the dynamics of flow on paper, um, you know, putting it an example service in a book like this always runs the risk of having it seen as an ideal model, uh, like you're saying. Um, but we really don't intend it that way, and it's really just meant to be one example of yeah. of many possible ways that you could have approached this very same service with the very same sermon, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I guess in thinking through um, planning these sorts of services, another thing that needs to be named is that context really matters, right? So you yeah. you should be paying attention to your own context, uh, and and that's really what will help to ground these principles um, in a manner that makes the service not only authentically contemporary so to that style, but also authentic to your congregation and to the people who are going to be participating in this service. Um, the third thing I would say that makes it somewhat artificial, and this is going to start to get at answering your original question, um, is that putting the, the service uh, on paper in this way, I think sort, sort of um, suggests that the focus of the planning is on the specific activities, right? Because what you have on the page is like, we're singing this song at this point in time, we're gonna say these words. And of course that matters. And you know, the other guys have spoken to how much thought and planning goes into that. But in fact, what we're trying to name overall is that the starting place uh, for planning any sort of service like this is really more of the why than the what or the how. Right. Once we shift our focus to the goals and to the so-called deeper essences or actions of worship that Lester and Adam were talking about, that actually then frees us to be really creative with what we choose to do in order to meet and fulfill those goals, if that makes sense. Um, So I this isn't written in the book, but just to sort of 
summarize the approach, I guess I think of two questions and two principles that can help to guide our planning. Hmm. Uh, and the questions are first, what are the goals of worship? Why is it that we're, what are we trying to do and why, you know, are we trying to do this? And that's what the first few chapters of the book are answering. And then the second question gets to the practical uh, part of it, which is what are we then going to do? What specific actions or activities are we going to do in order to achieve that purpose, to achieve those goals? Um, and along with that, then two principles for planning worship services that flow, I think pretty basic. Uh, first, you know, each part of the service should serve the whole, right? So that points again to the purpose uh, of the the service. Um, and I think that is a, a sort of a, a subtle shift for a lot of people because partly just because of the way that um, jobs are set up or that different roles are assigned and the busyness of everyone's lives. You know, in my experience in planning a worship service, everyone is sort of just given their own part to do, right? Like it's clear like, oh, I'm the worship leader. I'm in charge of choosing songs. Uh, I'm the pastor. I'm in charge of maybe choosing a scripture or maybe even not if you have the lectionary, uh, but I'm in charge of the sermon, right? And those various constituents don't necessarily talk to each other. Mm -hmm. um, but in this case, you know, you need to have like a, a, a larger guiding vision uh, that everyone is working towards, right? The flow is going to be strongest if everyone's on the same page, if everyone is is trying to swim in the same river, so to speak. Um, so then the second principle is just to bear in mind that in contemporary services, uh, more than one thing can happen at the same time, right? And others have spoken to this already. Uh, and that oftentimes more than one thing does happen at the same time, right? Uh, I think Lester mentioned that, you know, in traditional services, it, it te things tend to move pretty sequentially, pretty discreetly and linearly. You know, first you sing a hymn, then the music stops. Sometimes you have this really awkward gap where you're waiting for the next person to come up to the mic and then start praying, you know, and it's, so, it's really easy to sort of carve up the service that way. Uh, but in contemporary worship, there tends to be a lot more overlap, right? And for the sake of planning, you know, we often do ex have to express it linearly, right? Like we've done in the book and even, you know, a lot of churches now use planning center and you're still laying it out element by element. But in reality, it's not that easy to separate, right? You have music that comes in under a prayer. Uh, you have, you know, in the middle of prayer time, maybe you're inviting people to, to get up and move around, things like that. And so as you're planning, you know, just bear that in mind that there's actually a lot more going on than and just one activity. Um, I guess the last thing to say, the last thing to note that I hope is illustrated uh, in the service and throughout the book, even if we may not have explicitly named it, is that because of all these things and the way we're trying to approach it, um, we really think worship planning is best done as a team, right? You, you need to collaborate with the other people who are swimming in this river. Otherwise, you're just going to be like individual swimmers. Uh, in your own lanes, but really what we're trying to do is bring everything together so that everything works in tandem, everything really enriches other elements in the service, right? So that as a whole, we are able to um, not only bring glory to God, but also do it in a way that allows people to to get caught up in that uh, in that worship, right? In, in a sense. Um, yeah, that's, I think that was our, our hope. <laughs> Well, that, thank you so much, Debbie. It, it was it's such a delight to start to see it all start to, to come together into a, a tangible example.
So Lester, as we start to wrap up just kind of our, our conversation around this book, you include uh, towards the end, there's this this beatitude section. But one of the things that I appreciate is is that you you wrap things up by all of these techniques of, of applying flow into all of these nitty gritty ways. They're really all united in an effort to serve the church and to to create meaningful worship experiences of all these little pieces that we've heard can you help us think through how they're all applied in a single unified vision um, of contemporary worship that's learning from from ancient worship flow i think the key to kind of summarize everything is to realize that worship doesn't exist primarily on the page yeah Worship is an actual amazing dynamic between God and God's people. And so I think what we've all been talking about is taking that both seriously, intentionally, and playfully. Um, I mean, I, I often like to define worship as cosmic child's play for real. Yeah. So, um, just the awe of realizing that we are gathered in God's presence and we're actually talking to God, but brings in this amazing sense of this is another dimension. This is something unusual, but it's what we were made for. Um, But to realize that to do that in a corporate setting, a communal setting, requires some good intentionality in planning to make sure that things are not disrupted. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges for worshipers today is to only see at one dimension. And so to be able to see at multiple dimensions that it's not just on the page. This is not just a business meeting. These aren't just my neighbors from down the street, um, but that we're the body of Christ gathered and unified and joined to Christ and that we are meeting with the God of the universe. Um, That's our aim for flow is really just an attempt to help congregations realize that deeper true dimension to worship. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Lester, for your, um, your work on, on gathering together this, this wonderful team and presenting this volume of that, that, provides all of these excellent resources for the church. You know, uh, I want to thank everyone for, for your time and coming here to talk about your, your work on flow. I would love as we, as we close now to hear what are some upcoming projects, either as individuals or as a, as a group that we can be looking for. So Lester, can we start with you there? Oh, sure. Um, First, I want to say that I've actually done a disservice both to your listeners and to these contributors. When I first introduced them, I just noted how they were all connected to Duke and we're all students. But um, if anyone will get the book and actually take a look at the bio statements in there, they will see that this is a wonderful team with a wide range of um, experience, um, both in the United States and globally as preachers, as pastors, as musicians. So uh, I don't think it's a matter of what it is that this group can do. It's really a matter of what this group can't do. Um, That they can address worship academically or pastorally across a wide range, um, address it theologically, historically, or um, 
in terms of pastoral sensitivity. So we've got lots of things in mind. Um, I mean, one past project that many of these contributors also um, contributed to or um, had an in entry in is a book, recent book, academic book called the Essays on the History of Contemporary Praise and Worship. Um, Glenn Stahl-Smith, Adam Perez, and uh, Jonathan Ottaway all contributed to that, all doing distinctive um, historical essays and the development of this way of worship. Um, I think our next big project from this group is likely to be a pastoral one. Um, and I think Jonathan can probably best explain it. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're planning a follow-up to Flow um, called Rooted, oh, tentatively called Rooted. Um, if Flow is uh, aimed at mainline congregations, Rooted would be aimed more at uh, an evangelical or a free church uh, audience. Both books are really interested in teaching how to do ancient worship in a contemporary way. Uh, whereas Flow, though, kind of is teaching you how to do the contemporary portion of that. Um, Rooted would be going in the opposite direction, trying to see what wisdom does the church have for contemporary worship practices today? What can we learn from ancient practices of worship that can enrich and deepen our corporate worship life today? Um, so this is the, uh, a project that we're, we're working on together at the moment. Lynn or Adam, do you want to speak about the podcast that we're working on? Yeah, we're also uh, in cooperation with a, a grant that we've received from the Calvin Institute for Christian Worship. We're working on a podcast, uh, developing a podcast uh, that will help us to um, transmit and translate some of the research being done on contemporary worship in a variety of fields for the kind of worship studies, liturgical studies classroom. So trying to, trying to aim at this gap um, in actually the, the, what our seminarians and what our uh, you know, graduate students know about contemporary worship from a liturgical studies perspective. So we're, we're working to, to gather up those resources and present them in a way that um, can be used in, uh, in the classroom um, and for a popular audience interested in uh, that kind of deeper level of academic um, history of uh, contemporary worship. Contemporary praise and worship, I should say. I'll also just jump in and say I've got, uh, I'm coming to the end of my dissertation, which is a historical case study on the International Worship Symposium and its role in the making of praise and worship in the 1980s. I hope to see that um, somewhere available in the next year or two. And uh, I have an essay that um, is uh, hopefully be out soon also called uh, on the theology of enthronement in contemporary worship, both historically and contemporarily. And I've been working on a um, rather large history um, on the entire phenomenon of contemporary worship or contemporary praise and worship, told from the viewpoint of two different biblical theologies of worship and how that has motivated all the changes and then um, actually um, the biblical theology ser serve as the headwaters for the initial sort of impulse. I'm trying to make the case that uh, the emergence of this way of worship is not just due to cultural factors and is not just due to the Jesus people of the late 1960s. Uh, I'm, this is Jonathan. Uh, I'm also working on my dissertation at the moment. If I had to kind of give it a, a one-line summary, I would say it's uh, the first scholarly description of the 24-7 worship movement. Mm. Um, 
But really, there's a question that sits behind that, which is how do Pentecostal or charismatic Christians use scripture in different ways in order to frame or direct or energize their worship? I'm using the 24-7 worship movements uh, as a way of accessing that question. Yeah, this is Glenn. Um, I'm writing a dissertation on extemporaneous prayer and looking at uh, a specific congregational case study, how how Christians actually pray in a contemporary worship setting. Um, and then I'm going to put that in conversation with uh, sort of Augustine's uh, Christological ecclesiology and see how that 5th century um, voice can speak to a 21st century voice and what we might learn about how Christians do and should pray. Excellent. Drew, I think you already have your dissertation idea in mind too, don't you? I do, uh, working on early Pentecostal preaching and then moving that towards a contemporary Pentecostal homiletic in terms of uh, various features that the early Pentecostals valued that the contemporary ones could benefit from. Most pressing for our conversation today is that notion of improvisation and how do you flow verbally when you're talking and with what's going on with the congregation and those sorts of concerns. Excellent. Well, those all sound like fantastic projects. I hope they all get published and that you come back on the show to talk to us about it. Um, It's been an absolute delight having all of you. This has been a conversation with Lester Ruth and the Flow Work Group, who've contributed to Flow, the ancient way to do contemporary worship, available now from Abingdon Press. Thank you so much to all the contributors for coming on to talk to us about it. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of New Books and Christian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to like and rate and subscribe and think if there's anyone that you know who might find this episode interesting and share it with them. That's it for now, and I hope you have a great day.